31 of our study of the book of Hebrews, and we are studying Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 17. As always, I have changed my title again. It is now the problem of pain. When uh, my uh, grandmother was alive, she spent her last five years with my parents. She had uh, grown up during the Depression years, and I should say she was alive. She grew up before the Depression years. (laughs) She was alive during the Depression years, and she got used to saving money. And so one of her ways to save money was to turn off the lights. So she had her own bedroom, and uh, she had this thing about turning the lights off, And my parents were concerned that she might, in her physical condition, might slip and fall and might hurt herself seriously. And so my father faithfully carried out his duty of saying to his mother, Mom, you really need to leave the lights turned on. I I really think she intended to do that, but she just forgot. And five minutes later, that promise was gone, along with a lot of other things, and the lights went off. I might just add here, I fixed Grandma because I ran a light through the ceiling that she could not turn off with a switch. Thanks, Ken. And uh, she kept trying. She kept looking for that switch and whatever. But my dad, one day, he, he, he decides he's going to be a little more serious. And so he says, now, Mom, this is really important, really important. If you turn off the light, you might fall. And if you fell and hurt yourself, then, then you might not be able to stay with us. So... Will you keep the lights turned on? And, and she said, well, I, I, I might do that. And, and then she looked at my dad, and even this is 105 years old now, and she looks at my dad and says um, with a twinkle in her eye, well, what will you do if I don't? <laughs> my father, remembering his growing up years, said to his mother, well, Mom, there's always the woodshed. Grandma was not put off by this. She uh, she came back and said, uh, you better get help. <laughs> My point in all of that is that people in that generation understood what the woodshed was about. When I was uh, just finishing up college and interviewing for my first teaching job, I remember meeting with a couple of men uh, from a school district, large school district in the Seattle area, And after they had asked me all the questions that they had to ask, they said, do you have any questions? And I said, yes. What is your policy on spanking? And they said, why does it matter? And I said, because I will not teach in a school where I can't. They looked at each other with that knowing look, and I did not receive a contract from that school. As, 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 a cor- as a matter of course, I did get a teaching job, and I had a mahogany paddle that, that had been milled and drilled, I, I kid you not, and it was sitting in my closet. And I used that thing probably three times a year. Once, I might add, I paddled the principal's son, and he wasn't even in my class. <laughs> and I made a hero out of that boy. He now joined the fraternity of all the others. It was the best thing I ever did. And I remember one of my students, when I asked for evaluations at the end of the year, he said to me, the, be- the more you spank me, the better I like you. Spanked him one time with one swat. But he thought that was the greatest thing since sliced bread. 
How times have changed. How times have changed. It is just amazing to me how now it, 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 the, the, the paddle or the switch or whatever you want to call it, it's as though it's some primeval, uh, primitive, beastly act of violence that is just such a terrible thing. Well, I have to say to you, there's a lot of us here in this room who survived it. And, and, uh, and it seems to me the violence is getting more without it than with it. So we have to really wrap our minds around that, I think, when we come to our text. Because our text is talking about discipline, and it's talking about discipline that is, that in some cases, pretty serious. And, um, and yet, when we come to this text in Proverbs chapter 3 that's going to be quoted, we, some of the younger generation, their eyes roll when they see these things about the discipline of a child. They just cannot wrap their mental arms around the fact that somebody may actually lay some instrument upon a beautifully prepared place and do something about wrongdoing. They just can't imagine that. So I'm saying to you, if we're going to understand this text, we better put off our cultural blinders. We better look at things the way God does, and we better understand that God hates sin, and he deals seriously with sin, and he is serious about working in our lives to bring about righteousness. Now, when we come to uh, our text in Hebrews, let me just give you what I see, see as a kind of an overview of the verses from verses 1 through 17. It seems to me that the first three verses, you could say, is fixing our eyes on Jesus. His suffering is the basis for our striving. Now, I understand that it talks about this great cloud of witnesses and all of those uh, Old Testament saints and whatever, but it seems very clear to me that the author's intent is not for us to continue to think about those flawed folks, for we know from chapter 11 they really were flawed, but he wants us to look to Jesus. He is the one who is the author and the finisher of the faith. He is the one to whom we are to look if we are to finish the race and run it well. So his suffering becomes the motivation and the pattern for us as we deal with suffering in our life. And then in verses 4 through 11, our suffering is viewed from a different perspective, and I would say from our culture's point of view, a very different perspective. It is looked at from a divine perspective. What is our suffering all about? Where does it come from and why is it happening? And then in those uh, last verses, verses 12 through 17, a call to action, and that is looking for ways in which we may strengthen others. So let's talk about verses 4 through 11, seeing our suffering in a different light. And what he really does is, He's telling us, as I look at verse 4, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. In my mind, that's a very very clear contrast. In other words, he has just been speaking to us about the suffering of our Lord. He endured the cross. He endured the rebellion of men. He endured the eternal wrath of God on sin. And because of that, he says to us, in effect, you know, I can see that the, the, the Hebrew saints are already whimpering and whining, and, and he's saying, you haven't even shed any blood yet. 
And the reality is your suffering will never approximate. It will never come close to the suffering that Christ has endured for you. Our suffering does not hold a candle to his. And his suffering is really what we deserve. Let's not forget that. The sufferings of Christ are the sufferings that we deserved, and yet our sufferings will not approximate his. So that's the contrast that I see as he comes into this. He's saying, let's get our heads straight. You guys think things are going really tough? Well, compare your sufferings to those of Jesus. And realize your sufferings haven't even led to the shedding of blood. You haven't had it bad at all yet. And you'll never have it as bad as he did. Now, in verses 5 through 11, he talks to us about considering Christian suffering as divine discipline. And by the way, I do like the way the Net Bible translates that. Endure suffering as discipline. That's what we should do. We should endure the difficulties of life and we should perceive those as the discipline of God in our life for our good as well as for his glory. And then he cites this, what I would say is a forgotten Old Testament text, and I say that because that's what he says. He says, you have forgotten uh, these words. Now, when you go back to Proverbs chapter 3, it's very interesting. He's citing verses 11 and 12. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. That's the text he cites. But look at the context. It starts in verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching. And the author of Hebrews says, you did forget. You forgot. That's why you're whining and complaining about all of this. You forgot what Scripture said. I think it's very significant that he's citing an Old Testament text. Because the mindset in many Old Testament, uh, amongst many in the Old Testament was somehow following God always meant success. It meant uh, uh, happy times. It meant prosperity and peace. And we know from Hebrews chapter 11 that isn't always true. People of faith, some of them had great successes. Others got sawn in half. That's not exactly what we would call success or pain-free living. So he's saying here, don't forget my teaching. And notice how when that, uh, and I'm not going to go through that, but when you look at, at verses 1 through 12, it moves from the teaching and the discipline of the Father to a focus on God. And so what he's saying is, my fatherly discipline is to point you to God. And ultimately, what you need to understand is, the discipline of a godly father is the discipline of a son to point them to God, and it is really God's discipline that is coming about in those difficult times. And again, given Proverbs and the way in which it looks like spankings, I'm sure that the child may have sometimes been holding their hands on their back parts saying, that hurts! And and he's saying, it it does hurt. This is done out of love to point you to God, and this is the way God deals with his children. Boy, I'll tell you what, Job's friends would have done well to know that. They thought that when things went wrong, there had to be some sin that God was getting even with. Uh, Asaph in Psalm 73, he could have used a little blast of this. 
He's asking himself, how come the wicked are doing so well and I'm doing so badly? Because whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he disciplines through the sufferings that come about in our lives. So that forgotten text is cited and it is to remind us that the difficulties and the disciplines of life that come our way come from God our Father who as a loving father brings difficulty and adversity into our life. And I need to be very clear on this. Sometimes it is because we have done wrong and we need chastening. Sometimes it's the woodshed, to use my grandma's language. Sometimes it's the woodshed. But sometimes it is not. Look at Job. In the book of Job, he is cited as the paramount example of a person of faith. It wasn't that Job did something so wrong. It was that Job had not yet matured in his faith to where he should have been. And so God is working in a benevolent way to bring about the growth of his own. And so what I'm saying is when we speak about discipline, we are not speaking always of, shall we say, God's corporal discipline. We are talking about the training that God does. And that training often necessitates teaching children to do without something. But in our way of thinking and in our world, the parent's job, and we say spoil the rod and spare the child, ours goes like this. Spoil, uh, spare the hot rod and spoil that child. That's what we say. Give that child everything he thinks the world owes to him. My child should not do without any of the things that I did without. This text tells me God has me do without things because he is causing me to look to him and bringing about my growth. So endure suffering as discipline. Now, he says, discipline marks us out as sons. You know, that's the thing that's just so amazing about the thinking of today is when we have hard times, people are beginning to say, well, I wonder whether God really loves me. And, and, and they whimper and they whine. And this thing says, when you have hard times, recognize it is the discipline of God. God loves you and you are a son. If you're not experiencing discipline, then you must not be a son. Now, you know, I know it says uh, somewhere, it's been said, it takes a village. But it's very interesting. In the old days, if, if I were to misbehave in church, there are a whole bunch of folks that would have let me know about that. And now in these days, do you notice somebody else's kid misbehaves? You just don't see it. You just look the other way. And, and what you're really saying is, that's not my son. <laughs> well, it isn't in a way. It may be your responsibility, but it's not your son. He's saying we are his sons. When he pays attention to us and demonstrates his love by bringing about discipline in our lives. And that discipline, he says, leads to godliness. We benefit from those instances of discipline in our life because it moves us in the direction of godliness. Isn't this interesting? Discipline is, he says, painful at the moment. Could we not all from our memories of childhood say, you got that right. It hurts. It does. Discipline is meant to hurt. But, he says, it will bring about an eternal benefit. It's very much like what the scripture was saying in Hebrews chapter 11. Old Testament saints... 
dealt with difficulties in their lives because they knew that the blessings were not going to come immediately, but after their death. Moses chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to endure those passing pleasures of sin for a time because he was looking for God's blessing in the future. So the believer who is a child of God looks at the painful dimensions of discipline and he said, God loves me and I'm going to live and endure that pain because it produces piety. And that is what God is about in my life. So we endure, we are to endure discipline as that which comes from the hand of a loving father. And he says, if we endured the discipline of our fathers, and I think the sense is clear, they tried to do what was best. They did what they thought was best. And I can say as a father, that wasn't always what was best. We all mess up as fathers. But what he's saying is, they tried to do what was best, and you came out pretty well from that. He says, God, your father doesn't fail. And he brings about righteousness from what he's doing in your life. And therefore, how much more we ought to submit to his discipline. We submitted to our parents' discipline. Didn't like it, perhaps, but we submitted to it. We ought to submit to God's discipline as well. A call to action, verses 12 through 17. He says that we are to strengthen those who are weak. That's a very interesting citation. It comes actually from Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 3. We don't really have time to look at this, but I think the way I first read this text, I read it something like this. The author has just told us that discipline, while it is painful, comes from God for our good. And then I read these verses as saying, so get tough. Get tough. And quit whining and whimpering. But... When you look at Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 3, you'll see that the context is that that God is going to bring a punishment on the enemies of Israel. He is going to bring restoration to his people. And the challenge there is for the Israelites, the people of faith, to encourage their fellow believers to stand firm and stand fast in the midst of their adversity because God is going to bring about his blessing and the fulfillment of his promises. So I read that in the same way here. And if you look at at, uh, at the verses that we have in mind here, uh, in verses 12 through 17, these are verses that I see are not so much individualistic as they are collective. In other words, this is talking about the action that we should take with respect to our fellow believers, fellow members in the body of Christ. We ought to be encouraging them along in their faith so that we all finish the race together. Now, that's difficult for us in our competitive world. In our competitive world, we'd like to be tripping other people up so they fall so we could be the only one to the end of the track. That is not the way that this text looks at it at all. He says that we ought to be ministering to one another in such a way that they finish the race with us. And remember, we have a cloud of witnesses who have already passed the baton, so to speak, in this relay race and are cheering us on. So we are to pursue harmony, that is peace, and holiness, 
If we, as members of the body of Christ, are going to minister to one another, we cannot do so when we are at war with one another. We have to have harmony and peace that that exists within us as a body of believers to minister to others. And then he says we are to be alert for problems. That is a root of bitterness that grows up. And that root of bitterness has a corrupting effect on other members of the body. We are to be alert to those problems that are arising within the church that not only are detrimental to the individual, but they are detrimental to the body if they are allowed to go on. Remember 1 Corinthians 5, the man who is living with his father's wife, and and Paul says in that text that a little leaven corrupts the whole batch of dough. If the church were to foster that and somehow tolerate that rather than to discipline that individual, it would be corrupting to the whole church. So we are to look for those things that come up within the church that are adverse to them and to the whole body. Then we are to be, I I think, alert for unbelievers, and I add, like Esau. We are to recognize that there are people within... I would say virtually every church, unless it's got one or two people. Remember, uh, I'm not too sure about, uh, what is it, about me and the, uh, no, I'm, I'm something about me and I'm not too sure about the, well, that's, uh, you got to say, there's probably unbelievers in most every church. And so what the author is saying is, not only do we look for weaknesses amongst those who are people of faith, but we look for unbelief amongst people who are among those who have faith, and Esau is the example. Now, I have to tell you that I agonized most about this section of text, and why I agonized is because I said to myself, why Esau? I mean, he just doesn't seem to fit at first look. Why would he pick out Esau, who we clearly know is an unbeliever? How would we p- he pick Esau, and what does that have to say to them? Try this on for size. One, he picks Esau because every church has one or more. Secondly, the church is to seek to bring about blessing to all of the members of its body, and that's a spectrum. And so you have people on one end of maturity, and you have people who are all the way outside of the boundaries of faith. We're to be seeking to minister to all of those, and so unbelievers would be included in the exhortation to minister within the church. But I'm thinking particularly about the sins of Esau. Do you remember how it happens? Now, we know that at birth it was clear, it was made clear that it was Jacob who was going to be served by Esau, even though Esau was the firstborn, that it would be Jacob who would have the the rights of the firstborn. That was God's decision. But what we read in the text is that story that when Esau went out, and he was he apparently was kind of a woodsman, and he must not have had a good hunting trip, and he comes back famished. And and Jacob's been working on this. He must have been sort of an Amaral kind of a guy, and he's got this pot of red stew going, and... Boy, it smells so good. And, and so Esau wants a bowl of that stuff. And, and uh, Jacob, true to his nature, says, what's it worth <laughs> to you? And he says, sell me your birthright. Sell me your birthright. Now, while it was in the sovereign choice of God, Jacob that would be pre- uh, predominant in, 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 in the family line, 
It was also Esau's choice. He sold his birthright. So what happens later then is you remember his father Isaac wants to see if he can kind of reverse this thing and, and put it back because, you know, he's, Isaac uh, is, is, uh, is the favorite, uh, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, has Jacob as her favorite and he has Esau as his favorite. So he wants to hurry up and get the blessing and pronounce the blessing on Esau so that he can reverse what God has already said. Well, you know that it doesn't work. And and that must have been some scene. Can you see Jacob going there decked out in these sheep skins and trying to stink just like his brother did? You know, I mean, when he says, ooh, the smell of my son, hey, folks, that wasn't, you know, uh, uh, some of the stuff we buy for shaving lotion. This was the smell of a man who's been out in the bush. And, and so he smells him and he says, oh, this is my son. He doesn't talk like my son, but he smells like him. And, and, and so he pronounces the blessing. When Esau comes back in from the field, he now hears that the blessing has already been pronounced on Jacob. Now he cries with tears to have his father reverse it. But it is irreversible. And, and the point is, there is a point at which repentance is impossible. That is, I think that is true for believers and unbelievers. Now, when you look at Israel and their sin, for instance, in, in Numbers chapter 14 at Kadesh Barnea, they were told to go in and enter the land and possess it and take it. But after they rebelled against Moses and against God and threatened to kill them and get a new leader and go back to Egypt, then it was too late. Even though there were believers in that bunch, they were not allowed to change their mind. They, they tried. They went up and they started to try and possess the land and they were slaughtered. There was a point at which they could not turn the course around. I'm not saying they lost their salvation. I'm saying they could no longer enter into that blessing because of their sin. And I think the same is true for Esau, the unbeliever. There is a point at which one has a decision to make, and and it may be at some stage, as it was for him, irreversible. And so by the time Isaac was pronouncing the blessing, as much as Isaac would have liked to have done so, there was no way to reverse the course. He cried, he did everything else, but he did not get a reversal. So his sin, as I see it, is the sin of forsaking eternal blessing, long-term blessing, for short-term pleasure. Isn't that really it? I mean, when you think about it, I, I, I got to playing with words. He traded heaven for a happy meal. And he traded blessings for a Big Mac. Now, that's really pretty much the way it was. He took one bowl of stew in exchange for the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. Isn't that an amazing thing? And I want to tell you, this thing is so typical of our culture, is it not? Is not this the view of our culture? If it feels good, do it. If this gives me pleasure now at this moment, then I'm going to grab that pleasure and I'm not going to think about the consequences. That he is typical of the culture of our day, I believe, and he perfectly fits. Now, so he's immoral. That's another little struggle that you have. It says that he is an immoral man as well as an ungodly man. Now, what we know about him does not really point to immorality. It does point to ungodliness. He rejected the blessing of God. 
But it nowhere tells us he was immoral other than that he married Canaanite wives. Here's my thought. When you look at his basic value system, that is, he is willing to exchange a bowl of stew for his spiritual heritage, then is it, is it shocking or surprising to us that in terms of sexual morality, he would not be willing to take a very short-term pleasure and, and, and do that in the light of its long-term consequences? It seems to me it's very logical. Now, I, I distrust external evidence, but I will tell you this. External evidence outside the Bible in Jewish circles is pretty unanimous that he was an immoral man. And I guess my point would be this. It's not surprising that people who choose present pleasure over God's blessings will do anything of this sort. And so this may be just an insight to us at this moment. And you remember there's going to be a warning in chapter 13 about sexual immorality so that we may not be selling our spiritual birthright in the same way Esau did, but we may be selling ourselves short of God's blessings by taking the momentary pleasure. Here's the big one. He is so typical of the circumstance in the church. Here is a guy who is so close to God's blessings, but so far. I mean, here he is. He's an offspring of Abraham. I grant you that God has chosen Jacob over Esau. But in that sense, here he is exposed to the covenant blessings of God. And yet he chooses for the momentary pleasure of the time to forsake those Isn't that exactly the circumstance of some of these Hebrew readers? Here they are. They are a part of the covenant community of God. They have had all of the blessings of the prophets and the coming of Christ and all of the revelation that's come their way. And yet you look. They chose the momentary pleasures of the day. I'm thinking of several things. One, money. Luke chapter 16. For the Pharisees were lovers of money. And their love for money led them down a really terrible path. But it was momentary pleasure. This, John chapter, is it 11? Where they, where, where the, where Lazarus has been raised uh, from the dead and, and the, the uh, Jewish uh, Sanhedrin gathers. And what do they say to themselves? If we let this Jesus continue on, we'll lose our positions. See, what they wanted was they wanted a kingdom then. They wanted pleasures then. By the way, the disciples weren't all that different (laughs) at that moment in time. They wanted something immediate, and they were willing to forsake that which God had promised his people. That, to me, is so like him. And it seems to me what the author is suggesting to us is, if you were to forsake Christ and go back into Judaism, in effect, what you're saying is, I'm with Esau. I'm with Esau. I'm going to make the same choice. I'm with him. He rejected what God had promised his people, and I'm going to go with him. It seems to be powerful to me in that way. All right. Let's talk about some things uh, in conclusion. First of all, let's just review the text in a little different way. Now I'm looking at it from the standpoint of the filter of discipline. Discipline is necessary to finish the race. Is that not true? You have to set aside those things which are weights uh, that he's talked about uh, early in, in chapter 12, set aside the besetting sins. But the bottom line is, if one wants to finish a race, especially a marathon, you have got to exercise discipline. It's essential. 
Um, secondly, discipline is proof of our sonship and of God's love and care. If we do not exercise discipline or enough discipline on ourselves, God will see to it that it comes our way. And that is the way I think parents are with children. Children may make some choices, but the reality is most often uh, children are going to choose what is uh, pleasurable for the moment and, and not the long term. God will bring discipline our way. And that discipline is proof of sonship and of God's love for us. Seeing our suffering for what it is uh, enables us to endure it. And also seeing it for what it is not, and that is it is not an evidence of a failure of faith, as many good life gospelers would have you believe. It is not an evidence necessarily that there has been sin. There may be, but it is not proof of that. Job's friends should have listened. So we have to see our suffering as coming from the hand of a loving God. And I say the fatal flaw of the prosperity preachers. I have never heard a prosperity preacher preach from this text. Never heard it, and they never will. Because they don't want people to think that God may bring adversity and difficulty and suffering, even to the point of death, their way. What they want to promise you is that God is, is like an indulgent father who just can't stand uh, to have us do without anything, and therefore he heaps all of these things and indulges us. I think, I think that when we discipline our children often, we want God, to, we want to deal with our children the way we want God to deal with us. And that is, indulge me, indulge me. And the prosperity preachers are saying, he'll do it, but first, Send your 10% to me, and then God will multiply that uh, a many-fold. You know that story well. Do we deal with our children the way we expect God to deal with us? Is that what we're doing in our child training? I know this is a, a roundabout thing, and I didn't intend to do it. But you see, what the text has done, what the author has done, is to link God's dealing with his children with the way a godly parent raises their children. And those two are really inseparable in Proverbs chapter 3. If we have learned that God deals with his children differently than we may wish or think, then does that not suggest to us that we must deal with our children the way God deals with his? Does it not suggest that we ought to do things the way God does? Does God hate sin? Yes then we should hate sin in our child. And when our child rebels, we ought to say to that child, this is sin. This is sin. That's why I'm dealing so severely with it, because God hates your sin. This is sin, and that's why you need a Savior. We ought to be showing our children in our discipline that sin is uh, a terrible thing. I was thinking about timeouts. I'm going to, I'm going to step out and climb on the end of that limb and swing for a minute. But where do you find timeout in the Bible? I mean, you know, it's, it's like the Christian community has bought this thing and, and, and you want to say, think about it. Now, I thought about two timeouts. You're not going to like them. One is hell. Hell is the great timeout. It's God saying, you want to be by yourself? You want to be without me? You got it. But friend, you're not coming back. Hell's one time out. 
And in a way, church discipline is a timeout. And that is, if all other efforts on the part of the church to bring someone to repentance and to walk with God have failed, then church discipline is saying, you've got a timeout. But understand, that timeout is one where you hand them over to Satan. And it may involve the physical destruction of their flesh. It's a very serious thing. Now, if you want to have a timeout, you better do it in a way that's consistent with what we find in Scripture. But I suggest to you that many of us have timeouts because we just don't want to deal with sin the way God does. And that, to me, is a really serious problem. Oh, next. I'm going to get off that. I've, I've, I've said enough, I think, on that point. Discipline is our responsibility to others in the church. Isn't that what that last section of our text says? We are responsible to strengthen the weaknesses of our brothers and sisters so that they finish the race with us. And that, that includes the whole spectrum all the way from dealing with unbelievers to those who are more mature in their faith. Now, let me say something about Easter. You probably got all the way through this and thought, that is the screwiest Easter message I have ever heard. Okay, I got a few words to say about Easter. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to the faith of Old Testament saints. Abraham, when he was willing to offer up his son, he believed that God would raise him from the dead. All of the Old Testament saints, we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16, all of the Old Testament saints lived out their life understanding that God's promises of blessing were not going to be fulfilled in their lifetime, but after their death. Folks, that only happens if there's a resurrection. And in that sense, you can see all that, that host of cloud of witnesses as they're watching, as, as our Lord is on the cross, their hopes hang with him. You know, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you know, if, if he did not raise from the dead, we are of all men most miserable. We are. But boy, those poor Old Testament saints, <laughs> they were, they were banking all of their hopes on the fact that God would raise the dead. The resurrection of our Lord is absolutely critical. The cross is the measure of God's hatred of sin. And my concern is that there is a way in which when we celebrate Easter, it's almost like a happily ever after uh, in the church. And, and, and therefore, what we say is, and, and everybody lived happily ever after. And so the, the resurrection of Christ becomes a kind of a sigh of relief. And somehow it's supposed to negate or, or tone down the cross. The resurrection of Christ is the exclamation point at the end of the cross. The resurrection of Christ is saying... The death of Christ is saying, God hates sin. The resurrection of Christ is saying, God accepts the payment that Christ has made for sin. So what I'm saying to you is, the resurrection is critical, and especially in, in the earlier chapters. At this stage, it seems to me, the focus is on the cross of Christ and the lessons that it has for us, and that is God hates sin. And God hates it so much, he poured out his eternal wrath on his son that we might have eternal life. The work of Christ on the cross is not for every man, it is for everyone who believes. And so I have to say to you this morning, if you are here this morning and somehow you think there is some other way to get to heaven, 
If there is some other way to earn God's favor, there isn't. There is not. Your sin is so offensive to God that you deserve what Christ suffered. And I deserve it as well. But the good news is, Jesus Christ died in the sinner's place. And God raised him from the dead, which is his testimony that that payment has been accepted. And so I say to you, if you're here apart from Jesus Christ, trust in him. Acknowledge the greatness of your sin and the greatness of the Savior and the greatness of his resurrection and the power that he brings to your life because of his resurrection. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you that you love us so much. You bring adversity to our life to deepen and enrich our faith. Thank you that suffering in our lives is a proof that we are your sons. And we know that it leads to greater righteousness as you work in our lives. Help us to embrace the difficulties of life as coming from your hand. Help us to endure these difficulties as the work that you are doing in our lives. And if there is anyone here this morning who is here apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, trusting him as the one who died in their place, may you grant them faith to believe and to trust in the Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.